0: Before we get into this text, let's just go into the Lord in prayer. My Lord, my God, the God of, the Lord of hosts, oh Lord God, we are so thankful for your goodness and kindness, your mercy, your long-suffering compassion towards us. Oh Lord God, we thank you for your word that leads us on the path of righteousness that leads us on the path of truth that brings about the most fullness of life God we thank you for your word we thank you for the instruction on how to approach you and speak to you Lord God I pray that you through this verse God speak to the hearts of my brothers and sisters God to prepare them to come to you in prayer understanding how they should carefully use their words Understanding that you are holy, glorious, loving, and kind. Oh Lord God, I pray for revelation, God, in the hearts and the minds of my brothers and sisters here, God. Reveal truth as you've been revealing it to me and setting my heart on fire. God set their hearts on fire. Oh Lord, that we are forever transformed by your word. Your word is your will. Be glorified on today. This is our request in the authority of your son, Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, we've been looking at the model prayer, and since we're at the last verse, kind of just want to summarize, we started off by Jesus showing us to pray in this manner. He taught us to pray to our Father who is in heaven, recognizing the position of God, the first petition we were instructed to pray, the first priority of our prayer, it should be to hallow God's name. We learned about that. We, we learned that the next petition that should be in our mouth or coming from our mouth is that God's kingdom come. That's what we should be saying in prayer. We also looked at we should be saying, God, your will be done. That's the top three petitions. We we looked at how the first three petitions that Jesus teaches us to pray all have to deal with God and his kingdom. We haven't even got to us yet. So that shows us the priority of our prayer has to be God first. After the first three petitions that all deal with God, he teaches us in verse 11 to pray for our daily bread. Now we're talking about us. Now we can pray going to God for things we need. And we looked at the daily bread the substance that God gives us is for the purposes of us to continue to pursue his kingdom, to hallow his name, to bring his kingdom come and to do his will. After that, we looked at the next petition. We have to deal with our sin, our debt, and how we ought to respond when others sin against us. And now we come to the final, verse 13. And do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Remember, this is called the model prayer. And one of the reasons I would say this is best identified as the model prayer and not necessarily the Lord's prayer is because of verse 12. I don't think I mentioned that the last time we spoke on it. But in verse 12, he says, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Jesus had no debts. <laughs> So that's why it's not the Lord's prayer that Jesus is praying himself, but he's teaching us to pray. He didn't have any sin debts to be forgiven. This prayer is for us. It's for disciples who pray this prayer. And he's instructing the disciples to pray that. So I just wanted to bring that final little note here. But in our main text today, Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, Jesus instructs us, disciples of him, followers of Christ, he instructs us to ask the Father this, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. All right? When we hear the words temptation, or when you hear the words temptation, what thought comes to mind? Just throw all something to me. When you hear the word temptation. Um, on the U version, there's a little thing, and it says the Greek temptation also means testing. So it kind of does put in light that the temptation is kind of also a test. Yes. We're going to get into that. that that's, that's one point of view. Okay. Um, Anybody else? What do you think of temptation? What do you think about? What what comes to mind? Nobody? <laughs> the first thing that comes to everyone's mind is lust. Lust, okay, okay, yeah. Often when we talk about temptation, it's some type of enticement to do sin, right? Or to do something wrong. That's, that's probably the definition that comes to our mind. To do something that's not good, wrong i'm tempted enticed to do something like that and we know that temptation varies right temptation can go from i'm on a diet and this person right in front of me is eating his fat juicy cheeseburger while i'm eating kale salad or our grapefruit that's that's a temptation right they're eating it right in front of you you are enticed you you smell it you see the juice coming from their lips and you're just like I just want to bite that. that. That's a temptation, but there's other temptations, right? There's a temptation to cheat on your taxes, especially if you're like me and you do your own taxes. There can be a temptation there, or there can be a temptation to, if you are married to cheat on your spouse, there can be a temptation to, if you are trying to kick a drug, to try to do that drug again, right? Temptations vary. And so temptations are often a bad thing. So if temptations are often um, connotes as a bad thing, the question we should be asking then is, why is Jesus instructing us disciples to ask God not to lead us into temptation? Because God is holy and perfect and just and right, so it's not like God is going to lead us into sinning against him, right? Why is Jesus telling us to pray this, God not to lead us into temptation? Well, we're right that temptation is a bad thing, or often kind of uh, connotes as a, a bad thing, but temptation is also a very nuanced word in the Bible. Temptation can also mean, as Sister Layla said, trials and affliction. See, our English language is wide, right? It's broad. We have several words that mean, we'll use several words to describe one thing. It's a broad language, but many of your ancient languages, the Greeks, the, the Hebrews, their language had depth. So it wasn't very long, but one word would take on different meanings in different circumstances. And so that's why this word temptation, while it is Mostly in the Bible used to describe some type of enticement to do wrong or to do sin, it can also be used to describe, as just a label of sin, a trial or an affliction. I'm going to give you an example of this. Turn with me to Luke 22. Luke 22, verse 28. Go with me there. I just want to show you an example of this. Luke 22, verse 28. Here, those pages turning. I'm ready. Here we go. This is Jesus, and He's speaking. Look what He says here in verse 28. It says, "You are those who have stood by me in my trials. You are those who have stood by me in my trials." Does anybody have a King James version of the Bible? It says, "Temptation." That's my point. Do you see that? It says in the King James Version, it says temptation. But if I'm reading out the NASB, it says trial. Why? Because the same Greek word that is used in our main text for lead us not into temptation, that same Greek word here is translated as trials, right? It's a, it's a, it's a trial. It's the same Greek word is translated as trial here. But in our main text, because Jesus connects the temptation with deliver us from evil, we see that he's not talking about just a trial, but he's talking about actual enticement to sin. And so that's how we become that's how we interpret that. And that's why you will find in most translations of the Bible it'll have temptation there, not trials. Because Jesus points and shows us that he's not just referring to a general trial, but he's talking about an enticement to sin. That is what he's getting at here. So the question to still be, is God tempting us to sin then? if He's talking about sin, and why is Jesus telling us to pray that way? Is God tempting us to sin? The question is obviously no, but I want the scriptures to answer that for you. So look at James chapter 1, and let's see, is God tempting us to sin, or is there something else going on here? So go to James chapter 1. And look at verse 13 and 14. Look what James says here. He's going to answer answer us if God is tempting us to sin. Or can God tempt us to sin? Look what he says here. James chapter 1 verse 13. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I have been tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. So that answers our question. He says, God can't be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone by evil or to do evil. Look at verse 14. Here's where temptation comes from. He says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed. There goes that word enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So, what is James showing us? He's showing us no, it is not God. But that lust, that, 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 that temptation, it's actually something that is produced on the inside. It's something that comes from a fallen, sinful nature. And notice that James here, he's speaking to Christians. He's not writing this letter to a a Gentile world or just world of unbelievers, but he's speaking to Christians. Why? Because Christians have to still deal with temptation. Christians still have to deal with lust. And, And so he's reminding them that that lust, you cannot say that God is making me do this. He said, no, that, that, that lust, that temptation is being produced by you. It's your flesh. It's, it's, it's your fallen sinful nature. And guess what? If we don't by the Spirit of God put to death that lust, then eventually that lust, that temptation will conceive and produce a baby child by the name of sin. And that baby child will destroy you. And if you notice that James, I love that James in his scripture, he's using the metaphor of a pregnancy to describe the process of temptation. He says conceived. He says that that that, that temptation will conceive and will give birth to sin. So he's using the metaphor of a pregnancy, of a woman in labor to describe the process of temptation and how it works. Meaning. That if you are a married man or woman, and guess what? If you keep looking and you keep lusting, then eventually that lust is going to give birth to action. Meaning that if you are constantly thinking about the website, eventually that lust is going to give birth to you actually clicking and going on the pornographic website, meaning that if you constantly just hang around the bar or people that's constantly going to the bar, then eventually that lust and temptation is going to conceive and give birth and you're going to find yourself in the bar, in the situation. That lust is going to give birth to sin and that sin is going to destroy you. It's not going to give you the life that it promised. It's not going to make you satisfied, but it's actually going to rob you and take life from you. That's what James is showing us with lust and temptation. It's like a baby's sin. And guess what? When a woman's in labor, guess what happened? The baby just comes when the baby wants, right? And that's what happens with lust and temptation. It's going to come in moments when you're least inspected, and the next thing you know, you're in this messed up situation. Why? Because that's what happens with lust and sin. Eventually, it gives birth, and it destroys our life. So it's not God. That is tempting us, my brother and sisters. It's something that's happening on the inside. And it's also something that's external from Satan and his cronies. So we have these two factors that's playing a role in our temptation. So the question is now, if God does not tempt us to, to do evil, then what does Jesus mean here when he tells us to pray to not be led into temptation? The key word in our passage is the word led. The verse says that we are not led into temptation. Let me get back there. Do not lead us into temptation. Not God is tempting me, but being led into temptation. A good example of this is Matthew 4. Just turn over one chapter. Matthew chapter 4. Look at verse 1, and we'll get a better context of what Jesus is talking about here. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Look what it says here about being led into temptation. Verse four, I'm child. chapter four, verse one. It says Jesus was led up. Look who's leading him by the spirit. So this is God. Jesus is led up by the spirit. Look into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So who's doing the tempting here? The devil. It's not God. It's the devil that is doing the tempting. And what we must also understand that Jesus' temptation was external. Remember, Jesus didn't have a fallen, fleshly, sinful nature. His temptation was not something that is produced from the inside. His temptation was an external temptation coming from Satan. So it was an external pressure, not an internal one where he's over here contemplating sin. But it was an external one. So what is Jesus teaching us here when he's instructing us to pray to not be led into temptation? He's teaching us to ask the father not to take us into places or situations or scenarios where we might be tempted to sin and not pursue his kingdom and not pursue his will and not hollow his name. See, th- this petition is a request of humility and true love for God that says, Lord, I love you and I want, I don't want to be in any circumstance or situation that's gonna, um, cause me to bring honor or dishonor to your name. I recognize my flesh is weak and that I can easily fall into sin. So God, do not lead me into temptation. I don't want to sin against you. I don't want to do those things that bring dishonor to your name. See, that's the heart of this petition. God, I don't, I don't want to do anything that's going to bring me to sin against you, to bring dishonor upon your name. It also shows the sovereignty of God. recognizing that, God, you are the one that's in control of all things. It teaches us to humble ourselves, to understand that God is the one that controls things. That's why he says, God, you don't lead me, because it is your hand that controls all things. You are the sovereign one, God. So I'm looking to you, sovereign God, and saying, Lord, don't lead me into these situations. I know I have this flesh, this nature, and I can easily fall and I don't want to sin against you. Now when you look at it from that perspective, you can say, well, brother Jerome, we're tempted every day though. So what does that mean? I mean, we're tempted when we drive to work, I'm tempted when I go to Starbucks, I'm, there's temptation everywhere. So what does he mean asking the father not to lead us into, into temptation? Is he saying don't let us go anywhere outside of our house? Because anywhere I go, there's going to be temptation there. So what does he mean? See, one of the things that I, matter of fact, I'll, I'll save this for later. I'll talk about that later. Back to our point. Yes, in a general sense, we are all tempted every day. In a general sense, yes, we always have temptation right in our face. Yes, in a general sense, that is so true. But I don't believe that's the temptation that Jesus is getting at here. He's not getting at a general temptation, but he has in mind the situation that he just faced with Satan and the devil in in the wilderness. He just has, he has that thought in mind that that was, see, when when Jesus was going and and being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, that was Adam 2.0. That was that was the grand finale. That, that was Satan saying, okay, I already got Adam, so now let me see if I can get him. Let me throw my best stuff at him. That was a specific temptation, a specific trial that the Holy Spirit led Christ into to be tempted of the devil. So when Jesus is saying to ask the Father not to lead us into temptation, I don't believe he's getting at just a general temptation, but he's talking about that that serious temptation, not that temptation of I'm, I'm on a diet and I don't want to be tempted to eat a cookie after dinner, but I'm talking about that. Deep temptation. I'm talking about that recovering alcoholic who 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 stopped drinking and they just lost their job and now they are depressed and and their friends show up with a keg. Th- that temptation, or or the temptation of that person who's growing up in the hood in the inner city and and their kids are looking at them saying, "Daddy, I'm hungry," and, and the lights are off and and they're in this environment where it's just crime and poverty all around and their cousins and their friends show up with a check cashing scheme. Or some type of illegal, uh, tempt- uh, legal activity—that's temptation. Or, or it's that David and Bathsheba temptation. Uh, we're right now in our society. We're dealing with the uh, the Me Too moment, right? The Me Too movement. I'm sorry. And, and what people don't know is that the Me Too movement started way back in the Old Testament. The Me Too movement—you can see with David and Bathsheba. You have have David, this powerful king all authority, all power, and he sees this beautiful woman bathing who's half-dressed, and he uses his power and his authority, and she's probably in awe because the king, and he goes and allows that temptation to overtake him. That's temptation. When you are a king, you can get anything you want, and you see it, and you're saying, oh, it's right here in my face, let me go and take it. That's temptation. And David, he allowed that temptation to overtake him. So Jesus, when he's saying To not be led into temptation, he's talking about those situations that we face in this life. These these tough circumstances where it looks like my only option here is to do wrong. I'm so tempted, God, because I'm in this weird situation here, Lord God. I I don't want to sin against you, but I see no other option. And those are the temptations. Those are the situations where we're saying, Father Don't lead me into these circumstances, Lord. Don't take me into this temptation because in no circumstances, Father, I am tempted to do my own will, Father. I'm tempted to pursue my own kingdom, Father. I am tempted to hollow my own name, Father, and not do what you have called me to do. See, Jesus understands temptations. He understands these bodies that we live in. Remember, he's God in the flesh, He knows the lure of sin that we face. He he understands the schemes and the wiles of the devil. So he's teaching us to be proactive and go to the father's hand. Father, don't even bring me around these places. Father, don't even bring me into these circumstances. Father, I don't want to dishonor your name, Lord. Don't even take me down this path. That is the heart's desire. Why? Because we don't want to do anything to bring shame against his name. And we see Jesus emphasizing the the seriousness of temptation again in the garden of Gethsemane. Look at Matthew chapter 26. Go to Matthew 26. Look at verse 40. I want to show you this. Look what he says again. Look how he echoes exactly what he said earlier in our main text, and he brings it right back up again in Matthew 26. Look at verse 40. Matthew 26, verse 40. Look what our Lord says. He says, and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, so you men cannot keep watch with me for one hour. Look what he says in 41, our main text here. He says, keep watching and praying, that you may not enter into temptation. Why? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but that flesh, oh, that flesh is weak. Oh, it's one thing on on Sunday to be in here with your brothers and sisters, you're praising God, you're reading your Bible, but it's another thing to be at home when nobody's watching, and you know you can do that thing, and nobody will know that's temptation. See, uh, our spirit is, yes, and I just want to serve you, God, I just want to follow you, but that flesh, that flesh is something, and that is why we need the spirit of God to put that flesh to death. Because if you don't have the Spirit of God in you, that flesh will destroy you. And Christ is telling them, you watch and pray that you don't enter into temptation. He said, you only want to enter into temptation. Why? Because the Spirit is willing, but that flesh, oh, that sinful human nature, oh, that nature is something. So pray next, God. Don't take me to this place. I don't want to enter into temptation. Now, another way for us to understand this text, in a practical sense, is to look at the wisdom of our brother Agur in Proverbs 30. He gives us a practical application of what Jesus means by, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. So go to Proverbs 30. Proverbs 30. And I, I need everybody, if you have a Bible, please go there with me. So let's let's get the, the, the page uh, band and music going. Our brother Eger here. Proverbs 30, verse 8 through 9. He gives us some practical application to Jesus' instruction on temptation. Here we go in verse 8. He says, Keep deception and lies far from me. Here goes the part I want you to see. Look what he says. Talk to the Lord. He says, Give me neither poverty, so don't give me poorness. He says, nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. Why are you saying this, Edgar? Why are you giving this wisdom? He says, that I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of God. He's showing us where temptation leads here from two different angles. See, anger is showing us that with riches, he's showing us that with riches, there is an ever-present temptation to forget about God. That's what he's showing us. With riches, there's this ever-present temptation to say, I don't need God. I'm sufficient. I'm good within myself. That, that is why oftentimes when we would do door-to-door ministry, and I say this over and over, when we do door-to-door ministry, Oleg will tell you, when you go into more affluent neighborhoods, people don't want to open the door. They don't want prayer. They don't want to hear no gospel message. But then when we go to the areas where it's poverty or it's lower income, they're quick to open the door. They're quick to pray with you. They're quick to just let you know certain things. You see, when it, when it comes to the rich, it's, it's easy to get comfortable. What, what do I need God for? Look at my house. I, I got a nice job, I got a nice savings, um, there's science now. Um I there's education. What do I need God for? God who? Why? I got here on my own. See, he shows us that this there's this is ever-present temptation to forget about God when it comes when when there's riches. And see, I think that's part of America's problem. What we for have forgot about God. Because we are a very wealthy and educated society. And we feel like, okay, I don't need God no more. There's science for that. There's modern medicine for that. The only time we want to think about God is when there's a tragedy happens. When a major tragedy happens, then the churches get back and people are full. But outside of that, we like this. I heard a commentator say a few weeks after the tragedy, we kick and we uh, usher God right back out the door. But when a tragedy comes, come on back in, God. But that's just what happens in America. Wow, we're so comfortable. We have so much. God what? God for what purpose? See, Agar, he forces us to ask ourselves this true question. That is, can you stand to be blessed? Can you stand to be blessed? And what I mean by that is, We pray to the Lord, God, please give me more money. We say, God, please give me a better job. God, please give me a bigger house. God, we pray for a spouse. We pray for a wife. We pray for a husband. We ask God to give us these things. But here's the question. If God blesses you with those things, will they draw your heart away from God? Can you handle the temptations of a new job? Can you handle the temptations of more money? Can you handle the temptations that a new husband and a wife will bring and not that that husband or wife is going to tempt you to sin but the temptation of your heart no longer wanting to pursue God but to pursue the heart of your spouse more than God see those are all temptations that we have to think about when we are praying to the Lord can you stand to be blessed are you are you ready to be blessed in that sense because some of those things if you're not on your game it will draw your heart away from God so you have to ask yourself these things when you're going to the Lord in prayer. Agar also teaches us something else about teacher, about uh, temptation. The words of Agar in this proverb should also do this. It should humble us and make us second guess before we judge the actions of the poor or people in circumstances of poverty. That's what Agar teaches here, that we should second guess And have a spirit of humility before we judge the actions of the poor and people in poverty. Because the temptations that they face are great. And they're so great that Agar was like, God, I don't even want those poverty problems. Agar was like, God, you, you can keep that. Don't give me riches. But God, I don't want those poverty problems. Because I know if I'm in poverty, I'm going to be tempted to kind of steal and dishonor your name. So Agar said, God... You can miss me with those problems, as we were saying in the streets, he's saying. He said, I I don't want those things. Why? Because there's a temptation that comes with poverty, a strong temptation to go and take things, to get things that you need. Saved or unsaved, poverty can be a major temptation. And and I, I like how Charles Spurgeon, in his... um." In his commentary on this verse or in his sermon on our main text, Matthew chapter 6, 13, lead us not to temptation. Look what he says about poverty. This is Spurgeon. This is known as the prince of preachers. Uh, Many preachers revere him because this guy was a beast in the pulpit. But this is what Spurgeon said regarding poverty and temptation. He says, for if a starving wife, a wailing and wailing children, and a sickly infant are crying in our ears Who knows how soon we might betake ourselves to any means, to any means to satisfy their wants. Spurgeon is recognizing the temptation of poverty. He said, if my family's in this broken situation, who knows, you're going to do anything to try to meet that need, Father's. He said that is a real temptation. Their poverty is a real temptation. And that is why I so loathe all of the political commentary and attack that I hear on the poor in our society. Here are the arguments that I, that I often hear when I talk to people or I, when I look on the news. It, it's this argument right here. Well, I grew up poor. I know what that is like. And if I overcame, so can they. See, that statement right there lacks humility and it lacks the understanding that any time in your life that you have overcome the temptation of poverty, the temptation to do evil or wrong to survive, it was by an act of God's grace. It was not you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It wasn't because you were stronger than the rest, but it was all an act of God's grace, God delivering you from that temptation of evil. So, we gotta have a little humility when we look at the poor. We gotta have a little bit of, uh, we gotta lower ourselves, recognizing that, oh, wow, that could have been me. See, there's a humility that comes with that. God delivered you where you weren't in that circumstance. See, what we must remember, church, and what we must know that. God, in so many ways, he has been delivering us from evil or the temptation to do evil even when we were not even aware of it. He's been doing it. He's been doing it. Let me give an example of this. On Friday night, me and my wife, we were driving to pick up our soccer uniforms before we were going to come here to meet with the Chica's for Missional Community. And at the light, my wife's driving, she stops, and she just out of nowhere starts talking about how she's just so thankful how God protected her in high school because she was a mess. She was just really just out there in sin and out there in the world. Um, she was saying how she could have been killed and because of the many circumstances that she put herself in. And she was saying how she had, she's had guns pulled on her. Because some of the dudes she was dating, I mean, she said she was talking about how she's been in parties where there were were shootings going on. And she's like, I could have been dead. See, body of Christ, God has been delivering you from evil and the temptation to do evil your whole life. He has preserved you and not let you get utterly destroyed by the kingdom of darkness. Your whole life he's been doing this. Uh, let me let me explain to you what I mean in, in, in a, in a scriptural sense. Romans 3, Romans 3, verse chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. Pastor Brian preached on this a few weeks ago. But in Romans 3 through 18, Paul indicts the whole world. In the whole world, you are guilty of sin. And he lays out the charges against the whole world. That's Romans 3, 11 through 18. He shows all the ways that we are guilty before God. And one of those ways is this, in verse 15 to 16, he says this. He says, their feet are swift to shed blood. Talk about us. This is all humanity. He's saying they're guilty of this. He says, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. He says, everybody, we all have this guilt. And, And what he means by this is this. Some of us in here, In a fit of rage, guess what? You have thought about shedding someone else's blood. Some of us in here in a fit of rage, we have thought about shedding someone's blood. We have thought about doing bodily harm and bodily injury to someone else. And guess what? If it was not for the kingdom of God delivering you from that temptation to do evil and delivering you from the power of the kingdom of darkness, you might be dead right now or you might be sitting in a cell. (sighs) And guess what? Here's the secret. When God delivered you from that evil that you were intending to do that came in your psyche, in your mind, here's the secret. You probably did not even know the name of Jesus. He was doing it in our unsaved days. You probably never even heard the name of Jesus. You probably even never heard the gospel. <sighs> You were probably, like many people, you were probably sleeping around with your boyfriend or girlfriend, or you were probably getting drunk or getting high or or engaged in some sinful behavior, but Jesus delivered you and preserved you from that destruction, from that temptation to do evil. When I say Jesus, yes, Jesus has been preserving you. Because the father has trusted all things to the son. Jesus has all power and authority in heaven and earth is given to me. So Jesus has been delivering you from evil your whole life to the point. Guess what? That he did not let you die or get destroyed before you heard the gospel and God saved. You could have been dead, never hearing the gospel. He preserved you, kept you, even in your temptation to do evil, even when evil was coming at you. He has preserved you and allowed you to hear the gospel and to be transformed and changed into a person of the kingdom of God. See, even though we rebelled against God, lived as an enemy of God, he has been merciful to us. He has been merciful to you, even though we lived as rebels. He has preserved your life just like Peter. Guess what? The kingdom of darkness wanted to sift you like wheat. He wanted to sift your faith. The kingdom of darkness wanted to destroy you and would have destroyed you even more. But guess what? God said, no, he delivered you from that evil. Colossians 1 13 says, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. See, you were under the control of Satan. That's what we don't get. You were under the control. We were under the control of Satan and Satan in our flesh. So that means that When you hear about all these horror stories on the news, when you hear about that mother who drives her car into the river and and drowns her kid, or that father that recently goes and he shoots up his family, guess what, when you were under Satan's control, guess what, you could have been liable to do anything as well. Please understand, you could have been that same girl on the block selling herself. Don't think, remember you were under Satan's control under his domain, his dominion. You could have been that same person. You could have been that same girl who's rocking the yoga pants and is all into materialism and Eastern religions. That could have easily been you. you. You must understand that God has kept you. He has preserved you and allowed you to see Jesus Christ. He has allowed you to hear the gospel. He has been preserving you, keeping you, delivering you from the power of evil our whole life. And not only has he been delivering us from the temporal destructions of the kingdom of God, but he also delivered us from the destruction that would have happened if we would have continued to stay getting high and blunted, if we would have continued to live in the life, if we would have continued being engaged in sin, there would have been an eternal destruction waiting for us, but yet Christ delivered us from it. So he delivered us already throughout our whole life from the great evil that has come against us. And he has delivered us from the destruction that would come because of a life of evil as we stand before God. That's the gospel. He's been delivering us. So Christ has already delivered you from a great evil and from eternal destruction. Can we not cry out for deliverance from the trials and temptation that we face on our way to glory? Yes, in our prayers we cry out, God, deliver me from evil or the temptation to do evil. And God will deliver. He will make a way out, as Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10. But here's the thing that you must understand. is that God's deliverance may look different than you are anticipating. He will deliver you. But you must understand it may look different than you are anticipating. And I want to give an example of this. 2 Timothy 3.11. Let's go here, please. I need everybody with a Bible to turn here. I want you to see this. And then we're going to go to Acts 14. So if you want, have one hand in 2 Timothy 3.11, and then go to Acts 14, 19-20. I want him to show you something. I want to show you how his deliverance looks good. Our brother Edward already spoke on it, but I'm going to speak on it again. <clears throat> okay second Timothy 311 this is Paul talking about his deliverance his deliverance from evil look what he says here I'm gonna start in verse 10 he's writing to his his uh, understudy Timothy a younger pastor and he tells Timothy this starting 10 he says now you followed my teaching Conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecution, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and here's the one place I want you to really pay attention to, and at Lystra. Remember this word, Lystra. Lystra. What persecutions he said I endured, and look, and out of them all the Lord rescued me or delivered me. We're right. We right? We see that right there. So Paul's writing to Timothy. He tells Timothy, you know all these persecutions that I felt in these different places. Particularly, we're talking about Lystra. He talked about the persecution that he received there. And he says, out of all those persecutions that came my way, he said that God rescued him or delivered him. Right? We clear on that? What key city are we looking at right now? We're looking at Lystra, right? Can we say Lystra? Lystra, okay? Now turn to Acts 14. Acts 14. This, this, stuff, this always puzzled me <laughs> looking at that verse in this Acts 14 look at verse 19 here Paul is in our city, he is in Lystra right, so Paul is in Lystra a man has been healed people don't like it look what happens here in verse 19 Acts 14 Paul in Lystra, he says, but Jews from Antioch and Iconum, so he's in Lystra, and look, Paul has so many haters that they are willing to travel miles to destroy this man. He's in a whole nother city, but these Jews from Antioch and Iconum have come over to the city because they so hate Paul. So you must understand, when when the enemy wants to come, he's going to come for you. You got to get that. He don't care what's standing in his way. He's going to come for you. You have an enemy who walks around like a roaring lion seeking to whoever he may devour. That's what's happening. The enemy wants to devour Paul. and They don't care how far they have to go. They will go and destroy him. And that's the same thing for you. The enemy of the kingdom of darkness wants to destroy you. You have a permanent foe. So this is what's happening here. It says, but Jews from Antioch and Iconum came or having won over the crowd. Look what they did. They stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. Do you see what just happened here in Lystra? Paul gets stoned. These are rocks and boulders. Imagine getting rocks and boulders thrown at you. He's stoned. He's bloody. He's unconscious because they think that he's dead. So they didn't stone Paul. He's laying on the ground. The crowd is dragging him out. They think he's dead and they leave him. And the disciples come and he gets back up and it says he goes back to the city where they just stoned him. But the point I want you to really think about is that Paul just told Timothy that of all the trials and persecutions that I went through, God rescued him and delivered him from them all. But when I read that, that doesn't look like deliverance to me. Deliverance would have looked like I'm not catching any rocks to the dome. But he was catching all of them. He was left bloody. That doesn't look like deliverance to me. But Paul said, God has delivered me. He didn't take my life. And this verse puzzled me when I looked at this until I looked at Philippians 3.10, where Paul said, that he wanted to know the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. He said, Christ, I want to go to the sufferings for your sake. I want to meet you and know you there. That's why Paul can say God delivered him out of them all. He wanted Christ. He wanted to do anything for his Lord's sake. So his deliverance, it looked different. It didn't look like something that we would anticipate. That's not what I would anticipate when I see deliverance. And so what you must understand, my brothers and sisters, is that some of our brothers and sisters, let's say, that were in heavy drug use. Guess what? The kingdom of darkness has done a work on them, just like the kingdom of darkness has done a work on you. And some of those brothers and sisters, because of the heavy drug use, their bodies are messed up. They're dealing with a lot of health problems. But guess what? If you go to that brother and sister, they will tell you the same thing that Paul said, that God has delivered them from it all even though they still, they may have health effects, even though they may have dealt with these different things because of their heavy drug use, they will still say that God has delivered them from it all. So God's deliverance in the moments of temptation, the way that he makes a way out, it may look different than what you are anticipating, but God will make a way out. Let me give you an example of that. Um, We have some believers who maybe came out of homosexual lifestyle, maybe drug use. And guess what? Since meeting Christ, they have never had another homosexual thought. They've never had the taste for drugs or alcohol ever again. But then there are other brothers and sisters who they have met Christ, but guess what? They get urges every now and then. They get temptations. The drug taste comes in their mouth, the alcohol bottle, but God is still delivering them and keeping them. I I think about one of my favorite poets. Uh, she's a Christian hip-hop artist and poet. Her name is Jackie Hill Perry. She came out of homosexual lifestyle. Now she's uh, married, she has children, and she's an evangelist. But I heard her on a talk said temptation may still come. But she says when temptation comes, she says, I look to the gospel. So she says, yes, just like she said, just like when a, a married woman may see a beautiful woman, and he's tempted to look in love. She says, yeah, I may get temptations, but she says, I'm looking to the gospel and the gospel is keeping me. So deliverance, it may look different, but it is deliverance. God brings us through. So while we don't want the temptations, and we pray that God would not lead us in temptation. Guess what? Should God's divine will in providence, because he feels that it's good for us and it brings him the glory, allow us to go down that road where there are temptation minefields, in that moment we cry out, Lord delivered me from evil. That is how we'd handle that. Lord delivered me from evil. And I wanna make this point clear. That while God in his providence, he may lead us down a road where temptation may be on the side of the road. Guess what? We ourselves are never to arbitrarily take ourselves down temptation road. And there are many texts in the scripture that warns against that. One of those, for example, is Proverbs 5, 8, where Solomon is uh, talking to his son and he, and he, he tells his son about the adulteress. He says, do not even go near her house. Don't even go down that block. Basically, he said, don't don't even go over there where you can even maybe be tempted. Or I think about Romans thirteen fourteen. Make no provisions for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. He said, don't even give your flesh the opportunity to go in lust. So if you, if you find yourself struggling with maybe lust, he said then don't even go to a beach where you're going to have scatterly dressed people. Don't even put yourself in that situation. Or if you are trying to get out of the game, out of the streets, then you don't even go and put yourself around your old neighborhood, around your old friends that are doing the same life. He's like, don't even give your flesh a chance to go fulfill that lust thereof. Don't even deal with the temptation. Even if it's your family members and cousins, you you know yourself. You know the things that you struggle with. He said, no, don't even go there. Don't even put yourself in that position. And the final verse in our main text, he says, for yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. In your Bible, that last part should be in brackets. Is it in brackets in most people's Bible? The last part of our main text, Matthew 13, for yours is the kingdom, for thy is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. That prayer that we always say the reason that that's in brackets in your Bible or italicized in your Bible maybe is because that verse is not found in the earliest manuscripts. So that's why it's in brackets and italicized. So our Lord may or may not have said that. That's why it's in brackets. But that verse speaks to what we, how the prayer started off that our prayer and our thoughts should be about God's kingdom about his power and his glory forever. Amen. So it still rings true because that is what the kingdom is about. It's about God's kingdom. It's not about our earthly kingdom, but it's about building God's kingdom. All power belongs to him. All glory belongs to him. So that is how we end our prayer. So when we pray to the Lord, remember Jesus showed us in the first three petitions the prayers that you're asking for, the desire of your heart, should be about God's kingdom. It should be about his will. And it should be about his name being hallowed. Our requests and petitions come second. Our our thoughts when we go to prayer, our priority in prayer should be all God-word. That's what Christ is showing us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father Lord we thank you for loving us for keeping us for preserving us for allowing us to hear and see your gospel God keeping us Lord God we thank you for your truth to your scripture instructing us on how we ought to pray showing us the right perspective Lord oh Lord God in the moments of prayer Lord Jesus even when we don't pray as we ought to, we thank you that you are interceding, Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are interceding on our behalf, because we don't always have the right words, we don't always say the right thing, but Lord, teach us as you're teaching us in our word, teach us more and more how we ought to speak to you, what the desires and thoughts of our hearts should be, God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters that are here today, Lord, allow this word to continue to work on their heart, as they go throughout the day, throughout the week, This is our hope and our desire in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen.